For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. For the next two episodes, Rewire is working with guest producer Patrice Cullors, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and senior fellow at Moms Rising, to discuss an issue that's central to her work, birth justice. Um, So I'm a senior fellow at Moms Rising, and Moms Rising is a one million member organization for mothers, families, parents um, across the board. We um, consider ourselves a feminist organization. My role as a senior fellow in the organization has been working on issues of maternal mortality and morbidity. And so looking at the ways in which black women in particular have um, the highest rates of maternal mortality and morbidity in this country. Um, And what maternal mortality obviously means women who people who diet um, while giving birth, but also maternal uh, morbidity is actually that year after you give birth, um, you dying due to birth-related issues. And so um, there's, uh, there's a crisis in this country. The United States is the only developed nation in the world where the maternal mortality rate is on the rise. That rate is three to four times higher in black women than it is in white women. And researchers say that systemic racism is playing an undeniable role in this health crisis. On record, the state of California has the best maternal health policies. Um, but that doesn't always translate to for black women. So sure, it might have the best maternal health policies and outcomes for women, but if we're not looking at which women, um, then we're, we're missing a big part of the fight. And, and my argument, without you know having the numbers yet, my argument based off what I've seen in the trends is that black women are probably dying more in the state of California than other women while they're giving birth. So I traveled to Los Angeles where Patrice and I spoke to Rashad Tahani Lawler and Debbie Allen, two of the few black midwives in California, to talk about what it's like to serve pregnant people who are particularly vulnerable in our current political climate and medical landscape. I'm Rashad Tahani Lawler. I am a mother. I am a licensed midwife, born and raised Los Angeles, California. Debbie Allen. I'm a midwife. I'm from Los Angeles, California. Um, Hey, everybody. It's good to be here. I am so excited to be presenting on this podcast with two of my favorite midwives. Uh, They are actually my midwives here in Los Angeles. And uh, given this current sort of movement moment around Black Lives Mattering, I think it's important that we lift up the work of Black women who are helping bring in Black children and other children into the world. Um, And a time where we just keep seeing an onslaught of, um, uh, of terror from this administration. I feel like it's important to see glimpses of hope and um, these two midwives give me a significant amount of hope. They share an office in Culver City where Rashaw runs Crimson Fig Midwifery and Debbie runs Tribe Midwifery. And they actually both helped Patrice during her pregnancy. I knew I wanted a midwife. I think my first friend that was like, I remember her getting pregnant. She decided she was gonna have a hospital birth, um, but she wanted a doula with her. And she told me that it was just so remarkable to have like this doula support. As I got older and started to learn more about birth and birthing as a black person in hospitals and my own history um, with hospitals, I decided that I would prefer not to be in hospital and I'd prefer to have um, black midwives, midwives that look like me. And um, when I got pregnant the first time, 
I went to Rasha. I think Debbie was um, a doula then, and she was working with Rasha, so I went to Rasha's office, and then I had a miscarriage. Um, and it was really hard, that miscarriage. I really, yeah, it just sucks. It sucks when you lose a baby, no matter what age. Um, and I needed support, and so I, you know, I reached out to Rasha so that I could always go talk to her. Um, and then I got pregnant again. I got pregnant in 2015, and I called Rasha, and I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant again. And I was like, I'll let you know once I make it past that first trimester, because um, I really wanted to be sure I was going to keep the baby. And I made it past first trimester, and I called her, and then Debbie let me know that she also wanted to be my midwife. They don't, they don't often do that, but they were like, we got you, because they knew, you just like, it was literally in like the middle of the height of the, of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I was traveling, and so they really wanted me to be loved up on and taken care of. It was so powerful. I, I was so, I had a lot, I had a hard pregnancy. I was very, very um, impacted by pregnancy. It was not good emotionally for me. And I was, I ended up getting this really rare like thing called pelvic flooring. So I was in, a, it was in excruciating pain. I was wheelchair bound by my third trimester. So they just, they just took care of me and they just loved up on me. And how, who, who got into midwifery first? Oh, I should say that. Oh. Rashad. <laughs> can't point on a podcast. Yes, they, they can't, they can't see you pointing. <laughs> yeah. So, Rashad, how'd you get into midwifery? Oh, um, so it, it really, in fact, for me, was a, a, a spiritual experience, a calling. I was working in corporate. I worked for uh, uh, a large health company, health organization and I worked in environmental health and safety and uh, my cousin invited me to her home birth I grew up around birth my grandmother worked in a hospital she went to lots of births my aunt worked in a hospital and did home births but it didn't strike me as something that was like a job or like a job that was for me I don't I don't know I think it was just something that was just like your mom is a teacher like you just don't think about it and so I went to this home birth and I watched my cousin labor with easily 20 people in the house, grandparents, great-grandparents, cooking food, kids swimming in the pool in the backyard. She is a recording artist, and she was in her booth in between contractions, laying down tracks because she was like, once this baby comes, I'm not going to be able to do it. And then when it was time for her to have her baby, she just got on the bed, and her daughter that was, I believe, three at the time, got up on the bed with her in between her legs and touched her sister's head as she was crowning, as she was being born. And she turned around and looked at all of us and said, my sister, I can see her, she's coming. And I was like a wreck. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life and where do I sign up? And uh, there were two midwives in the corner and they were just knitting and being really chill. And I kept looking for them to do something but never felt worry or panic about what was happening. And, um, after that, it was, it was a wrap. I was in midwifery school. I was attending births. I was like full on student midwife within six months of that birth, like, like left corporate and, and started something completely new in an effort to get to where those women were, which was being confident in birth, sitting in birth, being present for it. Debbie's experience was very different than mine. Yeah, Debbie, do you want to talk about how you first got into midwifery? Well, I, 
So my first son was born in a hospital. I hated it. Like I, I, I had a, a doctor who I trusted. She was my gynecologist, black woman. I felt like we were on the same page about birth. And then when I went in labor and, and, and had my baby, I realized that actually we were on completely, completely opposite pages about what birth should look like and what it felt like and what, what was okay. So when I left there, I looked at their dad and it was like, I'm never having a baby in the hospital. I didn't know anything about midwives. They weren't on my radar. Never heard of one, never saw one, nothing. Um, when I got pregnant again two years later, I looked in the phone book because I was 22 years ago. And the first midwife that I saw, I called her, made an appointment, went in, talked to her, booked her. Um, she, and it was really just that, the, you know, she was somebody who listened and sat down and had a conversation and wasn't rushing me when I had a bunch of questions and didn't make me feel like an idiot for asking those questions. Um, she wasn't the midwife who came to my, who, who, the, the midwife who came to that first birth, my first home birth was not the one I hired. She was out of birth at that time. And so somebody was, was subbing for her and came and the midwife who came, I had seen her once maybe. Little white midwife, super conservative, conservative looking. Like when she walked in the door, I was like, oh my God, like this is never gonna work. Um, all my family's there. I'm black, my family's black too. And I, you know, I just, I just really felt that there wasn't gonna be a connection. So she came in, she came in, I was early, she came in in the morning, she chatted with me. And honestly, the way that woman was uh, is why I became a midwife. She was, she, she made, you know, birth is hard and labor is hard work. And she just made me feel comfortable in, in, in doing that and supported me. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a snarky birther and she was just chuckled and, you know, made me just feel so at home and so safe and so comfortable. And it never occurred to me that someone who was completely opposite than me, like on the street, we probably would have had nothing in common could come in and just be what I needed them to be in that experience. And it, I, I never I never knew that, that that was even possible. And after I had that baby, I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Rashawn and Debbie met each other while working at a birthing center in Los Angeles. This is, we have separate businesses, okay. but we work out of the same office. So how I got to know her is that I, there was this birth center that, um, there was this birth center that, I just, when I decided, okay, now I'm going to do this, I'm going to become a midwife. So I sent out a bunch of emails, a couple of people contacted me back. There's one birth center that I went to um, that I walked in and they were like, okay, you can be an apprentice. But what you probably don't know, what's, what's really funny is that the owner of this birth center is white. And this is, this, 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 it doesn't exist anymore, but the birth center was very, very, everybody was white. But anyway, she, the, oh yeah, but she wasn't in the office remember she only did out of office stuff at the time yeah. so the 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 midwife that that interviewed me from for the apprenticeship she was so uh excited to come and show me you <laughs> like wait 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 there's another one of you here because she there was a couple of rooms where midwives were doing appointments she you were in an appointment and she knocked on the door and was like i want you to meet her and i want her to meet you to like Say like, oh yeah, there's another black person here because midwifery is very, 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 very white. But they used so. to do that for clients too. Like they would pull me, I, I would be in the toilet, and they'd be like, "There's a black person here. We have to go get Rashad." But it was just funny because you know, <laughs> and it, it's it's very much so. But it's it, true. It, so my journey with the, with midwives in general was a little bit tricky for me because I don't, I'm not a good like how I feel is what I say, and and. I'm kind of like very outspoken about a lot of things. So um, being in a, in a world where, where midwives who are white, it's very obvious that they are, are uncomfortable just with you being a black person in that space was very hard for me to 
negotiate. So I left that place. She stayed a little bit longer, but I had always told her, I'm like, oh, I'm going I'm to get you and I'm going to bring you with me. I'm going to make you like, I'm a, you're going to do my bidding. <laughs> I'm gonna, you're going to give me some training and then I'm going to open a birth center and make you the midwife. Do you remember I still that? Do, I still do her bidding. <laughs> But yeah, so so she was one of my teachers and she was one of the one of the midwives that was there. Today, white midwives far outnumber black midwives in the United States. And as Rashawn and Debbie have discussed, the field as it exists now is not very inclusive. Rashawn and Debbie have both experienced racism in the field of midwifery, but black midwifery is nothing new. As Rashaw pointed out herself, she comes from a long line of black midwives. Exactly. The first black midwives in what is now the United States were enslaved Africans. Most southern plantations had an enslaved midwife, and slave owners would even enforce these midwives to work on other plantations for additional profits. The traditions and practices of these midwives date back way before colonization. But because of racism and sexism, the history of midwifery in the United States has been extremely whitewashed. Here's what Rashad and Debbie had to say about that. So the history of midwives in the United States is that for the longest time, it was done by people of color, black women and indigenous people. It was a job amongst black people and people of color, a revered and honorable job. The the community would take care of you. They would come get you horse and buggy, take you to the home. Um, If it was a situation where you're on a plantation and they're slaves, it was go get her. She came in the house. She was allowed full access to the house in order to ensure that that birth went well. But it was because white people didn't want to do it. It was a gross job. It was a dirty job. It was a peasant's quote unquote job. Well, as more people started having babies, as the medicalization of everything started to happen, doctors realized we can make money. Like people are going to always have babies. We can make money doing this. Wait a minute. How do we get in on this? So what they did was they slowly made midwifery illegal. They, they created all these barriers for these women that maybe didn't even know how to read, but were excellent midwives. Oh, well, you have to be able to read these, these documments. You have to be able to uh, have all this equipment and sterilize it properly and, and go through all these procedures. You have to be able to take a test. You have you to be able, be able to take, take a, a test. test to get a license to become a mid- midwife to people who were, it was illegal for you to learn how to read. Exactly. How are you going to take a test when you can't, you, for generations and generations, you couldn't even read? So the barriers kept getting put up so that it could be something that doctors did. And well, the doctors, they just wanted to come in at the end. They wanted to come in for the catch and then leave. So they needed someone to take care of people leading up to that. So that's where the nurses came in. So white nurses came into black communities and said, we're going to teach you how to be good midwives. We're going to teach you how to do a better job. We're going to teach you how to keep people safer, cleaner. Some of these midwives had gone to thousands of births and never lost a baby. I'm not talking about stillbirths where the baby had died already, where they were actively participating in the birth, where they had never lost a baby. And now they have someone come into their community who doesn't look like them, who says, I know better than you. I know more than you. I'm going to teach you how to do it better. Well, after they did that, then it was, oh, we don't need you anymore. They created these clinics, which we still have in our community, these quote unquote free clinics where you go. The government says you can come here you take your Medi-Cal, your, your social services and get care. They put all these nurses into the community to do that so that then when it was time for people to give birth, they went to the hospital and the doctor did the birth. And slowly but surely it became home birth and midwives were something that poor people did. So, of course, nobody wants to do what poor people do. So then midwifery gets this kind of 
like a stigma. Like a stigma yeah. of like, oh, that's something poor people do. That's something that you it's don't do. It's, it's a backwards way of birthing. It's it's archaic. It's the old ways. We need to do things the new ways. And so people started moving into hospitals to give birth. So. And for black people who you couldn't even have a baby in the hospital, you know, everything was segregated. It was a, it's a stat, it was a status symbol to be able to not have to have your baby at home and to be able to have a baby in the hospital. Exactly. exactly. And so fast forward to what, 60s, 70s. And now we've got feminism, but it's white feminism. It's we're going to burn our bras. We're going to grow our armpit hair and our leg hair. And, you know, we're going to stick it to the man. and We're going to do our own thing. And one of the things they said was, we're going to take back our reproduction. We're going to take back our bodies. We're going to take back, you know, our power, our say. We're only going to have as many children as we want. And then on top of it, we're going to have our children where we want to have them. So this white midwife started learning from other midwives, learning from doctors, white doctors willing to teach her. Oh yeah, this is how you keep a baby safe. Oh yeah, this is how you suture. Willingly teaching her. They're talking about Ina Mae Gaskin, who's often considered the godmother of modern midwifery. While she did learn from white male doctors, she gained a lot of her knowledge from women of color who've gone unrecognized for their contributions. There's a famous maneuver in childbirth named after her. It's when the person in labor gets on all fours to push when the baby's shoulder is stuck. It's called the Gaskin Maneuver. Now, based on that name, you'd assume she invented it, but she didn't. She learned it from a midwife in Belize, who picked it up from midwives in Guatemala. But she did bring it back with her to the United States, where she taught it to mostly white doctors and midwives. Debbie and Rashad had a lot to say about Ina May. She moved down to Tennessee from Northern California and got this big piece of land in Tennessee and put all these white people on it. And they started this, you know, intentional community where they were doing birth. And that was their sole thing was teaching people about birth, empowering people about birth, reproductive health, take back your birth and take back your, you know, your reproductive rights and your power. So then it became this thing of, oh, I'm going to become a midwife. I'm going to be a midwife. But it was still even then very, very white because black people, black midwives are still recovering from the, oh, you don't get to do that anymore. That's not for you. you we're not going to allow you to do that. It was the 70s. It was, it was white feminism that was like, oh, we're going to take back our birth. We're going to become midwives. And it was a few of us that got the actual calling, whether it was physical, whether it was psychic, whether it was spiritual, or whether it was just somebody in the family being like, oh, you should become a midwife. And then returning to it and finding that we were not welcome, that the actual history of midwifery was not taken into consideration, was not even taught. And the midwife that she's talking about, that a lot of people consider the mother of midwifery. The mother of midwifery. And, and the white midwife that she's talking about recently had, uh, was at a conference. Earlier this year at a Texas meeting of birth workers, a registered nurse named Tasha Portley asked Ina Mae Gaskin, the woman they're talking about, how racism affects black infant and maternal health. And a black woman asked her why, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase, I, I don't want to, this is not exactly what she said, but in a nutshell, why do you think the statistics with black women are so high? And with, with uh, prematurity and, and deaths and maternal deaths and all of that. And she said that um, diet, and that, that she thinks that if they grew their own food and uh, worked harder at that, that 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 would change that. A lot of them, a lot of them are on drugs, and that's the problem. I mean, and this is the woman that people look to as 
the go-to for modern midwifery. Her name is Ina Mae. That's what she is. So, so she's still saying stuff that is so... Racist. <laughs> yeah, it's racist. It's racist it's as racist. fuck. Mm-hmm. The woman who asked the question, Tasha Portley, and other leaders in the East Texas birth community created a petition calling for the public condemnation of Gaskin's remarks and addressing the need for increased funding to support training for black midwives. And it was interesting because a lot of people spoke out like, well, how could you say that? Like, people are eating well and working and doing all that. It has nothing to do with, with, with the statistics. Like, why are you telling, why are you teaching this to people who are learning midwifery now? Why are you teaching them this, these, like this is a fact? And um, it, it's just... That 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 is still the mentality of midwifery. Like it's still so. That's why they still think like that because it's the stuff is still perpetuated. Just just like in the real world, it's no different. So there's really there's no there's no rationale for white midwives to think anything different or to work out be better or work outside their box because they're being fed the information as well. Oh, well, you know, black people they don't eat as well and you know they make bad decisions and you know they're not safe with their their sexual practices. They do all that's being perpetuated so they don't have any reason to think, "Oh, you know, maybe let me do a little research. Let me see if I see something different." On a completely just like a like a, a sidecar to what Debbie just said, one of my proudest moments was having Ina Mae standing in my birth center. Standing next to my grandmother, standing next to my cousin, who's a midwife, next to me with my daughter on my hip, and my grandmother chuckling about how she's a youngin, and them basically doing like whose titties are the biggest of who's done the most births and what they've seen and what they've been through, and Ina Mae eventually conceding and basically being like, yeah, wow, you, you've seen some stuff. And I was just like, well, yeah, yeah, she has, and so did her grandma, and so did my cousin, and so have I, like, we've been here. It's just, it's frustrating. But at the same time, if you spend all of your energy being frustrated and worked up about how messed up it all is, then you can't give good care. Then you can't show up for your clients. When clients hire us, when I, I can speak for Debbie in this moment, when they hire black midwives that are conscious of what's going on in society, they're also hiring someone who's gonna show up for them when they have to go into unsafe spaces as a pregnant person, as a person that needs help in their most vulnerable state. So do we want to be, you know, quote unquote, you know, at the, at the door with the shotgun, so to speak, for people when they're giving birth? No, we don't. But we have to show up like that time and time again. And white midwives, they just, they have no idea. They have no clue. So I only have one last question. We've talked about discrimination midwifery. Um, we've talked about how you all give care. I want to talk about um, maternal mortality. Um, so, you know, my biggest fear was either losing my baby or me dying. Um, and it wasn't because it was like a paranoid or imagined. It's because there are real threats of black women um, either losing their child or dying while giving birth. And um, and that being even higher in this country, um, we have the worst maternal mortality rate. Black women are four times more likely across the country to die, right? Either while giving birth or in that first year um, uh, after they give birth. And I only know this because I got pregnant. <laughs> it's not because I knew it beforehand. Mm-hmm. I'm actually ashamed that I didn't know beforehand. I didn't realize the real 
risks it meant to be a black woman pregnant and it wasn't until I got pregnant and started doing research and started having my own lived experience where I was like this is terrible like yeah, this is you, actually a tragedy exactly literally exactly and I remember you know it wasn't till months after my c-section and my pneumonia that my family told me about the that that the both of you called my mom and said okay I want to prepare y'all if she ends up dying and just having to do that work um, and, you know, just having to do that labor around making sure that people are okay, black people in particular, and then knowing, given the statistics, that they're more likely to die, what do you all take on the maternal mortality rates? Um, there's some amazing work happening. The Black Mamas Matter Alliance mm -hmm. has been, you know, throwing it down yeah, for have. the community. Um, uh, and my fellowship at, at Moms Rising, it's my primary work. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear how you all understand it before it became, uh, right now it's becoming popular, but this has been an issue for decades. Mm -hmm. I, I, my personal take on it is that one of the main reasons black women are dying is because no one's listening to them. They're not, they're, they're, their voices aren't being heard. When they, ha when they have a complaint about what's happening in their body, after they have their babies, no one's hearing that. And so that gives a lot of space for infection and bleeding and things that really are preventable deaths because people aren't listening to them. They're not valuing their voice. They, this world doesn't value the voice of black women. So, so a, a lot of the deaths that are happening, especially postpartum, are preventable deaths and really deaths that are happening because what this woman is saying, no one is really paying attention to. I want to thank Rashawn Debbie, not just for this interview, but for being two of the most amazing midwives and serving communities most marginalized by the healthcare system. Next week, we're going to hear more about a trans man's story of pregnancy, his journey, what it's been like, and why he chose to get pregnant. His name is Alex Alvarez. He's one of my close friends, and I'm excited for this audience to get to hear about why he's choosing especially in this current moment under uh, 45, to be pregnant and trans. This episode was produced by myself, Jen Stanley, and Patrice Colors for Rewire Radio. Mark Folletti is our executive producer and director of multimedia. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode is by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perrone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team for getting the word out about Choiceless. Tune in next week for another episode with Patrice Colors. Thanks for listening.